would turn with me to Acts chapter 2. I want to continue in the passage that we were in this morning. This morning we looked at verses 22 and 23, which had to do with the life of our Lord Jesus Christ and then with the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ. Tonight we're going to look at verses 24 uh, and following, which have to do with the resurrection uh, of our Lord. So I would like to begin by reading from verse 22. Uh, down to verse 36. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. But David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades and, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the path of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, a pro being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spake about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we, are, we all are witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now this morning in verses 22 and 23 we saw that uh, Jesus was attested to by God. He was accompanied his life by uh, mighty works and wonders and signs. And that the people that uh, Peter is speaking here uh, to here in Acts chapter 2, they know that quite well. These events are just, uh, are just from a few weeks earlier of his uh, death and his resurrection. And the people have known his ministry. Jesus was widely known, as we saw in the scriptures this morning, uh, throughout, uh, throughout Israel. And so uh, these people knew few, full well about who Jesus was and that he was a man that God uh, had put his stamp on uh, as this miracle worker in their midst. We saw in verse 23 that men had a specific role in the death of Christ. And we talked about this morning the details of his crucifixion. We also saw in verse 23 that God had 
a specific role in his crucifixion. And we talked about the, the definite plan and foreknowledge of God and why that was the case and what the implications of that truth was. Now tonight we come to the resurrection uh, of our Lord and then following verse 24 we're going to see the scriptural evidence from the Old Testament uh, proving that Jesus was in fact the Messiah. Verse 24 says, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Now, this is a revolutionary message. If it was not true that Jesus had been raised from the dead, then this audience, this particular audience that knew him full well uh, would have been the ones uh, to challenge what Peter is saying here in his, ser in his sermon. These men who knew Jesus are the ones to whom Peter is declaring that God raised him up. And if uh, that was not true, and if people had information to the contrary here, these men of Jerusalem, they would have every opportunity to challenge what Peter is saying, but they do not. Now, let me make a few statements to you about the resurrection. The resurrection of Christ is the central theme of gospel preaching. This was the dominant note of the apostles' preaching. They had more to say about this than they had to say about his death. Now, one of the things that uh, is interesting, if you go to the book of Acts and you read the many sermons that are there, the impression that you get uh, from just a casual reading of those sermons is how significant the subject of the resurrection is in those sermons. Now, we talk about the resurrection some, you know, from time to time in our preaching. We don't ignore, I hope, uh, that subject, but we tend to, to talk more about the cross of Christ than we do the resurrection of Christ. Like I think that is the case with, uh, with us here in modern times. But it is clear that the apostles, when they were preaching here throughout the, these early years of the church in the book of Acts, that anytime they talked about the, the cross and the crucifixion, it was only to lead in to them declaring that Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. It was the central point of their message and of their preaching. It is the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, I would suggest to you, that proves everything. All things essential and primary to the, to the Christian faith turns on this truth. The resurrection proves that Jesus Christ is God. The resurrection proves that Jesus Christ is the only Savior of the world. There are no other alternative resurrected people in this world. It proves that, he, that His atonement uh, is a perfect sacrifice for sin. It proves that death is not the end for anyone. It proves that there is a future resurrection. It proves that there is a future judgment. It proves that all the scriptures are true. That the promises and the claims of the Bible are real. All of these things are proven by his resurrection from the grave. 
The greatest proof that Jesus was the Messiah was not his teaching or his miracles or his death. It was his resurrection uh, from the grave. Thousands of people were crucified on Roman crosses. Only one died for the sins of his people and only one was raised from the dead. Jesus of Nazareth was the Son of God, and it was demonstrated by his resurrection. His resurrection is the cornerstone upon which all Christian truth and practice depends. Everything is built on this. Without the resurrection, there's no Christian faith. Without the resurrection, there's no salvation. Without the resurrection, there's no hope. If Jesus was not raised from the dead, then nothing matters. But if Jesus was raised from the dead, then nothing else matters in comparison with this person and this event. Now, unless you think I exaggerate, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And let's look beginning at verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. So let me just pause there for a moment. Uh, Paul is saying here, if there's no resurrection from the dead, that everything that we tell you is just empty words. They don't mean a thing. And everything that you believe and that you count on and you trust in doesn't mean a thing. It's all empty. It's all vain if there's no resurrection from the, from the dead. Verse 15, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ. Whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Again, let's pause for a second. He's making a very strong statement there. He says, if Jesus has not been raised from the dead, your uh, faith is empty and meaningless and worthless and you're still in your sins, and you still need to be saved, and there needs to be some other way found because it's not Jesus, and it's not the message that we preach to you in the Christian gospel. Verse 18. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And this again pause. He's saying that there are people that we preach Christ to, and they believed in Christ, and they died. And if they die believing in this false message that's not real and not true and it's just empty, then they've just perished. They died and they, they weren't saved because there's no truth to what they were trusting in. Verse 19, if in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. In other words, if we're believing these things, we're saying these things, we're trusting these things, and they're not true, they're not real, they're not genuine, then we are just a people to be pitied. 
because we are just deceived and tricked and what we are hoping in is just empty. Verse 20 says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. And so he, he, he lets us know how serious this matter is. But then he makes this definitive statement at the beginning of verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The implications, those people didn't perish who died believing in Christ. Your faith is not empty. Your hopes are, are, are not uh, a waste of your time and something that is going to let you down in the end. Uh, you, uh, you can with confidence uh, believe in the gospel message and trust in God's message surrounded by this truth that God has raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Now let's go back to our Acts chapter 24 and look at our text. Excuse me, Acts 2, verse 24. Acts 2, verse 24. Now our text says, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death. Now, that, that is an interesting uh, phrase there, loosing the pangs of death. The word loosing means to untie something or to release it. The word pangs is literally the word birth pangs or labor pangs. And it can mean, besides the pains of labor, it can also mean acute pain or agony, but its primary meaning is birth pangs. Now, some take it to mean simply that God did not leave him to the agony or the misery of death. Now, Jesus certainly suffered the pangs of a horrible death. In the resurrection, he is in every way loose from the sufferings of death. We talked about his horrible uh, death this morning uh, as we were looking back at verse 23. Now, some see in this statement an allusion to Psalm 18, if you want to turn over. We're going to look at a couple of psalms, so you may want to kind of halfway keep your finger over there uh, in the psalms. Some see this as an allusion to Psalm 18 and verse 3 and following, where we read, I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. The core, and this is the, the specific allusion that is seen to be in Acts 2.24. The cords of death encompass me. The torrents of destruction assail me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for help. From his temple, he heard my voice. And my cry to him reached his ears. And so uh, this is viewed as a, as, as a cry that is coming from the Lord Jesus Christ as he uh, is facing death and as these things are happening to him. And certainly we can see the connection between being loosed and this idea of the cords of death. Now in this same psalm, in verse, with Christ in mind, look down at verse 16. He sent from on high. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. 
He brought me out, of a, out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands. He rewarded me. And then let's skip all the way to the end, to verse 50, where it says this. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. Certainly a statement that is directly applicable to our Lord Jesus Christ. And some see an allusion in this statement uh, to this psalm. Might it be that our phrase in chapter 2, verse 24, rather than referring to his agony means that the grave could no more hold Jesus back than a woman in labor can hold back a baby from coming forth. Now, what our text says right on the heels of this statement, losing, loosing the pangs of death, is it was impossible for him to be held. In both cases, it's not possible to be held. And that is the next statement that we're going to see in our verse. He was loosed from death because he could not be, be held by it. Death has been given an impossible task. The evil one, the one who has the power of death, Hebrews 2.14, gives death this charge, hold as prey, Jesus of Nazareth in your bonds. And death could not do it. He could not be held by death. Now, our verse, the next phrase in our verse is because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Now, this is truly an extraordinary statement. This statement is in contradiction to everything that we know. It is the most fundamental and sober fact of this world that death is certain and that it is permanent. It is impossible for us to escape it. Death and taxes, right? But concerning Christ, Peter says the exact opposite of what we know to be true. He says that it was impossible for death to hold him. Now, how can this be, and why would that be true? Well, I would suggest two things to you. First of all, there is no moral or legal basis for death to hold him. Now, Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. And so there's this, there's this direct connection between sin being a sinner, and being subject to death. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. Now, at the end of the week, uh, our wages, our paycheck, is not a gift. It is something that is owed to us. We ought to have it. It would be wrong for us not to have our pay at the end of the week. And what Romans 6.23 is telling us is, is that it would be wrong for us not to receive death. It is the wages, the right and proper wages, uh, because of our sin. And so death is connected to sin and its penalty. This is the reality that brings death to Jesus. 
It is the sin of his people. Their sins are placed on him. He bears them. He is a substitute for them. He becomes a curse for them. But the scriptures tell us that Christ has done certain things. One of these is propitiation. A word that basically means satisfaction. Romans 3.25 Whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood. So directly connecting propitiation to His death on the cross. To be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Romans 3.25 Now Jesus Christ brings about a complete satisfaction by His blood. God fully vents his wrath. He fully executes just penalty for every sin. God is satisfied and he is propitiated because Christ has met all of God's holy demands in respect to sin and there is nothing left for God to be dissatisfied about. It's not that somehow Christ just kind of sloughs over Or appeases in some way God. On the cross, Jesus Christ satisfies every demand of God's wrath, every demand of his judgment, every penalty that God would require for sin. He satisfies it all. And when Jesus says that it is finished and he dismisses his spirit, as we uh, heard this morning, we, we know that our Lord Jesus Christ has fully satisfied God and there is nothing left for him to be dissatisfied about. The scriptures tell us, talk to us about reconciliation. Colossians chapter 1, verses 19 through 22. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth and in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And so the reconciliation that, that Christ accomplishes as he brings God and man together, uh, he brings uh, all of God's elect uh, to, together and reconciles them to God. This is done by the blood of his cross, and so it has everything to do with his dying. Verse 21, And you who once were alienated, And hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. And so because of what Christ has done, uh, he can present us as holy, blameless, and above reproach. Those are words that never, ever should apply to us in our native state. That is not what we are. But that is what we are because Christ has reconciled in his body of flesh, in his death, us to God, making these things true. And this verse also says at the end of verse 20, making peace by the blood of his cross. Not only reconciliation, but peace with God. Now over in Hebrews chapter 9, let me flip over there, Hebrews 9. Verses 11 and 12, there's another thing that has happened in the cross. And I'm not going to exhaust all the things that have happened and have been accomplished by Christ. I'm just hitting a few high spots here. But Hebrews 9, verses 11 and 12. 
says this. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. And so our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, he, he, he accomplishes this redemption for his people. The full price is paid for our release. Our verse says that thus securing an eternal redemption. That is a redemption that fully satisfies God, meets every requirement, uh, every debt that God's people have have been paid and it is an eternal redemption. It will last forever. It will never come to an end. Over in chapter 10 here in Hebrews, he makes this statement in verse 12. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. It's what, what Hebrews 10, 12 is telling us is that Jesus comes into the world and he makes this once for all sacrifice for sin. There's much about that uh, in these chapters uh, 9 and 10 uh, in the book of Hebrews. And he makes this once for all sacrifice for sin. It is never to be repeated again. It is an eternal redemption. And then we see that we can know exactly that it was successful and that it was good and that it was right and accepted by God because it says he sat down at the right hand of God when he finished this work. All the requirements of justice have been satisfied and what is the proof? Romans 1.4 Romans 1.4 tells us That he was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. He was declared to be the one who successfully met all of the demands of God. He completely kept God's will. And how do we know that? Because God <laughs> declares him to be so. And how does he do it? He declares him to be so by raising him from the dead. It is God's exclamation point on Jesus' life and on his death and what he has accomplished in his incarnation and his time in this world. Now, I would suggest one other thing that is a reason why death cannot hold him. Turn with me to John's Gospel. And let me point out to you a few verses here in John's Gospel. Listen to these statements about our Lord Jesus Christ. John 1, 4. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And so John is saying here that intrinsic to this man, Jesus Christ, different from all of us, we don't have life 
uh, in ourselves, but in him was life. Uh, he was a, a source of it. He, he was the living one. Chapter 5, verse 21. Chapter 5, verse 21. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. And then verse 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, and those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of, ju uh, of judgment. God has life in himself. The, the Son, our, the Lord Jesus Christ, also has life in himself. Chapter 10, verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Down to verse 17. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. And so we see here that the Lord Jesus Christ says that no one can take his life from him. It's intrinsic to him. It can't be taken from him. He voluntarily lays it down. We see that he does that on the cross. And he says that he has authority to take it up again. That he has the power to take back life, the life that he gives up uh, for the sake of his sheep. Look at chapter 11 and verse 25. 11.25 And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, he sh uh, yet shall he live. And so our Lord Jesus Christ makes this claim that he himself is actually the resurrection and the life. And so I would suggest to you that this glorious person... This one that has life in himself cannot be held by death. I will remind you uh, in Hebrews chapter 1 of that incredible statement. In, in verses 1 through 3. It says, long ago at many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand 
of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Now, this verse tells, uh, makes a number of incredible statements about the Lord Jesus Christ. It says that he is the one who has been appointed the heir of all things. You probably remember that famous statement by Abraham Kuyper that says, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine, that it belongs to him. He's the heir of all things. Every atom, every subatomic particle, every galaxy, to the farthest reaches of space, it all belongs to Christ. And I would suggest to you that death cannot stand over him or subject him to itself, this one who is over all things in his power. It talks here about him having creator power. It talks about him upholding the universe by the word of his power. All things are sustained and carried along by the power or the energy of his command. He, he can never be subject to anything in this creation. Rather, everything in this creation depends on him. One of the statements here in this passage is that he's the exact imprint of his nature. It means that if you strip away everything superficial and secondary and get right down to the foundational, essential reality of being God, whatever God is in his most basic reality, Jesus Christ is exactly that. And we know that God is not and never will be subject to anything in this creation. Now back in our text, I want to say just very quickly, because I'm noticing my watch and we're really out of time, or nearly out of time. So back in our text in Acts chapter 2, let's read beginning in verse 25. Because here, uh, Peter is, is using the Old Testament scriptures to prove that these things about Jesus of Nazareth are true and are in fact, to be expected. Verse 25. For David says concerning him, and now he's going to be quoting from Psalm 16. I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have, made, you have made known to me the paths of life, and you will make me full of gladness with your presence. Now note that in the beginning words of verse 25, it is Peter's assessment that when David writes this psalm, that David is saying concerning the Christ, the Messiah, that is not going to be ultimately fulfilled in David. It's going to be fulfilled in David's greater son, the promises, especially in verse 27, for you will not abandon his soul to the grave or let his Holy One see corruption. In other words, his body is not going to decay and come to ruin in the grave. Now, I'm going to kind of skip ahead a little bit because of our time. In verse 29, he says, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David 
that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. So the implication of that, I, I, get, I hope, is, is clear to us all, that this was not fulfilled in David. David did not have verse 27 uh, uh, come to pass in his life. He, in fact, was buried, and he did see corruption. Verse 30, there, but being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he, that he was not abandoned to Hades or to the grave, nor did his flesh see corruption. Now I want you to turn, there are several passages I was going to look at, but we'll just look at one. Again, Psalm 132. Psalm 132, just to remind you of what David has in mind as he makes this prophecy. It is the Davidic covenant. It is the promises that God made to David. And look in Psalm 132 and verses 11 and 12. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on my throne. And how is that that ultimately going to be fulfilled? Are any of David's sons going to keep his covenant and his testimonies? They are not going to perfectly keep those things, but there is one of his descendants, that we will do exactly that. And when he does that, perfectly keeping covenant, perfectly keeping the testimonies of God, he will, in fact, sit on David's throne forever. It is a reference to our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, back in our text in Acts, we're at verse 32. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Let's pause there for just a moment. Let me remind you, back in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, Christ had said to his disciples, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And that's what we see happening here. Peter is making this first declaration, this first witness to the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead. In our Sunday school class, I don't have time to do it now, we looked at the nearly dozen occasions that our Lord appeared uh, to people following his resurrection from the dead. Many, many witnesses, hundreds of people that saw him after he was raised from the dead. Many, many witnesses. Verse 33. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. And so what uh, he's saying here in these verses is, on this day of Pentecost, when you see the Holy Spirit being poured out in the events of this day, this is happening Because the Lord Jesus Christ has not only been exalted, has not only been raised from the dead, but he is also, Psalm 110, that he quotes from, 
he is also then exalted to the right hand of the God of God in heaven. And he there has received all the promises that God had given him that he would receive upon his triumph. We see the Psalm 110 being quoted in verse 34. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucify. Let it be known that he has made him Lord, the sovereign one, king. Let it be known that he has been made Christ, the anointed one, that is prophet and priest and king to his people. He says, all Israel, hear this. This man, God has made your only hope and salvation. Know this for certain. Now let's talk just quickly about the implications of this, this doctrine, the truth about the resurrection. If you're a Christian, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 19 and 20 tell us that you are a Christian and you are spiritually alive because God has exercised in you the same power that he, that he used when he raised Jesus Christ from the dead. God has already exercised resurrection power in your soul, making you spiritually alive. Of course, one of the implications of that to us is that he will exercise that same resurrection power again at a future day in our body on the last day when he also raises our body to newness of life. In Romans chapter 6, you want to turn over there for just a moment. Romans chapter 6. Let me point out a couple of verses to you. Verses 3 through 5. Therefore, brothers, I got the wrong verse. Hold on one moment. Romans 6, 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him in, uh, by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And so what, what Paul is telling us here is that because we are joined to Christ, because we are in him, because we have been saved and been made part of his body, uh, part of his church, part of his people, because that is true about us, that just as Christ died, we have died to sin. And just as he was raised from the dead, we're going to have two things to be true about us. As born-again people, we're going to walk in newness of life. And also, as born-again people, one day we're going to experience the fullness of his resurrection. We, too, will be raised from the dead. Every Christian, 
Every true Christian will walk in newness of life. And every true Christian will, on the last day, be raised, body and soul, from the dead. Now, one last verse, Romans 10. Romans 10, 9 and 10. And I just want to bring this to your attention. Because this is critical to the gospel itself. We have a simple way to, uh, to assess whether or not we are a Christian. And it's found in Romans 10, 9 and 10. There are just two things in this verse. It says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And so being justified, that is being made legally right with God, and being saved, being delivered from all the ruin and misery that we're in as lost people, those are things that happen to us when we come to Christ. But there's just two things that are stated in verse 9 that are essential things. It is that you confess that Jesus is Lord and that you believe that God raised him from the dead. Now, saying that Jesus is, is Lord is not just something that we with our lips say. In your heart of hearts, in the part of you that only you know and God knows, in that place that none of the rest of us can see, we can't see in the, the deep places of your soul, in that place can you say, Jesus is Lord. He is my master. I belong to him. I will serve him. And then the other question in our verse, do you believe what stands in contradiction to everything we know in our world, that Jesus Christ was in fact raised by God from the dead? These two things. Is Jesus your master? And do you believe in this teaching from Acts 2.24 that God has raised him up from the dead, that death could not hold him? Let's close with the word of prayer.